You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Hot Topics in Allergy, presented by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. Your host is Dr. Todd A. Marr, Director of Pediatric Allergy Immunology at Gunderson Lutheran Medical Center in La Crosse, Wisconsin. How are the different diseases that comprise chronic obstructive pulmonary disease treated, and how can physicians diagnose COPD before it advances to later stages? Joining us to discuss the spectrum of COPD is Dr. Sidney Brayman, Professor of Medicine and the Division Director of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at the Elpert Medical School of Brown University. Welcome, Dr. Brayman. Thank you, Todd. Nice to be here. COPD is something we, we all hear about, and I guess the question that I think a lot of providers have is, is it really just a disease of smokers or previous smokers? I mean, who else should we be looking at at risk for developing COPD? I think you're correct in saying that COPD is a disease of smokers. Uh, upwards of 90% of patients in this country get their disease because they have previously smoked cigarettes. That's not to say that there are other contributing factors. We know that certain occupations, dusty occupations, may contribute to COPD. However, that effect is really overwhelmingly obscured by heavy smoking in these industrial workers. Then there is another part of the population that is really confusing. There are patients who have COPD, airflow obstruction, that never smoked. When we delve into their histories, we find out that they've had considerable exposure to ambient smoke. My father smoked three packs of cigarettes a day. My husband smokes two packs of cigarettes a day. And at least epidemiologic evidence suggests that if you are an individual who has been exposed to environmental exposure to smoke, particularly at a young age, that this may contribute to developing COPD at a later age. Sid, is there any length of time for that exposure? Well, we don't know. Certainly, the heavier the exposure, the longer the exposure, the more likely that you'll develop COPD. But once again, Todd, this is really more epidemiologic data. One of the problems in studying a disease like COPD is that it probably begins even during teenage years. We know that heavy smokers who are teenagers, pack-a-day smoker, two-packs-a-day smokers, if we went into their lungs and looked around, we would see considerable numbers of inflammatory cells, even at that early stage where they would have no symptoms, have no signs of the disease, and not really have manifestations of the disease when we test their lungs. But the inflammation starts very early in this this disease and takes literally decades to create the condition that we know as COPD. So it's often diagnosed in its later stages then. Can we do something to detect it earlier? Well, this has been very controversial, Todd. The latest direction from the American College of Physicians and other organizations suggests that mass screening not be done, even in those who are heavy smokers. And this is really more of a decision of cost-benefit and so forth. There are some clues to patients with COPD that may allow us to detect the disease earlier. For example, we know that patients who develop COPD often have a history of recurrent bronchitis, especially the winter cold that lingers and lingers. This may be a sign that early airway disease is developing and the patient does have COPD. So recurrent attacks of bronchitis, especially the winter bronchitis, would be a warning sign and may direct you to doing the proper lung function testing, the spirogram, looking for COPD. In addition, many patients, as you already said, don't really present with their COPD until much more advanced stages have occurred. And the reason is, interestingly, simple. 
when you develop COPD, you begin to develop shortness of breath on exertion. So what do you do? You begin to avoid activities that make you short of breath. And it's sort of a denial that occurs, but very often you ask a person, are they short of breath? No. How's your golf game? Oh, I don't play golf anymore. I can't walk up those hills. How are your grandchildren? Oh, I can't play with my grandchildren anymore. I can't walk my dog anymore because of those hills around my neighborhood. So what happens is that by asking the right question, how is your activity level, and ask specific questions, we may find individuals in earlier stages of disease who have the airflow obstruction of COPD on lung function testing, but may not ordinarily complain to a doctor unless the right questions are asked. Excellent. So let's take a step back. What are the three diseases that are classified as COPD? I think it would be refreshing for people to have you kind of recap those and talk about the differentiation between those three. Yeah. Well, if one looks at the medical literature from years ago, one would see that when we talked about chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD, that very often three diseases were mentioned. They were chronic bronchitis, emphysema, and also, curiously enough, asthma, which we think of as a reversible airway disease, while COPD, chronic bronchitis, emphysema, irreversible, meaning that you'll never regain normal lung function, even when you stop smoking and take medication. Well, the most recent of the guidelines, the most recent of the the articles about COPD, uh, really recognize that COPD is really more of a disease of chronic bronchitis and emphysema. We define chronic bronchitis as chronic cough and sputum expectoration at least three months of the year, at least two years consecutively. That's that person I was mentioning before who's got the chronic productive cough who once or twice a year gets a bad, quote, chest cold, end quote. So that's the chronic bronchitis defined clinically. Unfortunately, clinically, we really can't tell the difference between chronic bronchitis and emphysema when a patient presents with shortness of breath. The reason is because there are probably elements of both chronic bronchitis and emphysema. If one were to do specialized testing, like high-resolution CAT scan testing, yes, we can define emphysema by looking for destructive changes. But the truth really is that it doesn't matter because we're going to be approaching the patient clinically and therapeutically really in the same way. We give effective anti-inflammatory medication couple times with bronchodilator medication, and patients often return to normal or near normal. We've also learned in recent years that many patients, particularly those undertreated, although this is somewhat controversial, I I believe that it's patients who are not aggressively treated, who are not given their anti-inflammatory therapy early and continuously, will develop fixed airway obstruction. Their lung function tests don't return to normal or may not really reverse at all even though we give them medication to do so. And many people have looked at this later stage of asthma, this chronic fixed airway disease of asthma, and said, these people look like they have COPD. And in some respects, I guess you could say they do. While the pathogenesis is very different, they do have fixed airway obstruction like patients with emphysema and bronchitis, and hence many will think of them in the realm of COPD. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Hot Topics in Allergy from ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Todd Marr, and joining me to discuss the spectrum of COPD is Dr. Sidney Brayman, Professor of Medicine and the Division Director of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at the Elpert Medical School of Brown University. So, Sid, 
for primary care providers out there, the one thing they should do then, or what should they do to diagnose COPD? They're not going to order high-resolution CT scan. We both know that. So what should they take away from this? Yes, I hope they would not do a high-resolution CT scan. I was just using that as an example of how we might differentiate how much emphysema. And indeed, in very later advanced stages, since they probably know that there is some surgery for COPD, this is not frequently done, but at this time, one might do a high-resolution CT scan. So what can we do to diagnose? Well, the first thing is think of this disease. Patients with COPD either present with that chronic cough and recurrent bronchial infections or they will present with shortness of breath. So when you hear a patient's got shortness of breath, especially if they're a cigarette smoker, that would demand lung function testing, pulmonary function testing. Simple spirometry can be done in the office. It is reimbursable, and I think that this is something that would be very helpful to have as a primary care physician tool like this. If there is evidence of airflow obstruction, one might then give an inhaled bronchodilator. Certainly in a, in a hospital laboratory, this would be done, looking for that reversibility component. If the disease shows very little reversibility, if the clinical history suggests COPD, if there are risk factors there, such as the cigarette smoking, then I think that's how you make the diagnosis. So spirometry is key. Not only will it diagnose the disease, but also, as importantly, stage the disease. We then can know from the numbers how bad the disease is and give some sense of prognosis for this disease. So we're going to talk about treatment in a minute, but I guess the question I have is somebody's already developed COPD, you've made the diagnosis, does smoking cessation help? That is a great question. And you know, Todd, the answer is emphatically yes. And many patients will look back at you when you say you got to stop smoking and with those doe eyes will say, well, the damage is done. What good is it now if I stop smoking? Well, there is very clear evidence now that if one does stop smoking cigarettes, even if you have fairly significant disease, that the progression of the disease will slow down. Your lung function when you stop smoking won't return to normal, but the rapid decline of lung function that occurs in COPD smokers will stop. Hence, one can actually improve morbidity, improve mortality. Yes, you can live longer if you do stop smoking. Identifying COPD in the smoker, therefore, demands that we get patients to stop smoking. It will improve their outcomes and, I think, will improve their mortality. So then how do we treat COPD? What are the most common treatments out there? Well, I think there are a lot of algorithms that have been put out by a number of organizations. One of the organizations that first brought COPD to the attention of the world is the guideline called the GOLD Guideline. This was a WHO, World Health Organization, NIH, National Institutes of Health Collaborative. And the GOLD Guidelines set a standard for the rest of the world on how we would approach and treat COPD. So www.goldcopd com is online and one can look at the algorithms and the treatments. But basically, it is an approach very much like we've learned about asthma, step-up care. So if a patient is only having mild or intermittent symptoms, he only notices his shortness of breath when he walks his dog in the morning, you give him a short-acting beta agonist that is safe to use. He can, he can use it uh, several times a day if he gets shorter breath with exertion. And this is really all that he or she would need. I say she, Todd, because there are more women diagnosed with COPD in this country than men. In 2001, for the first time, more women died of COPD than men. It's a great tragedy. They've come a long way, baby, unfortunately, in the wrong direction towards COPD. So early on, 
intermittent symptoms, we just treat with a short-acting beta agonist. Then the symptoms are going to progress. Now, you may ask me, why would that happen? If you stop smoking, and I told you that the damage slows down, why is it that year after year, lung function will continue to, de to decline? Well, here's the good news and the bad news. The good news is you're getting older every year. The bad news is you're getting older every year, and so are your lungs. So there is a certain deterioration of lung function that just occurs naturally with aging. And that's why the patient who can stop smoking at age maybe 50, the damage does not go away, the lung function doesn't return to normal, but that person maybe at age 65 or 75 can for the first time have symptoms of COPD because their lung function slowly over time was deteriorating and they reach that threshold where they become short of breath. When that shortness of breath becomes continuous, meaning throughout the day, most activities, is when we should think about the use of long-acting bronchodilators. And there are long-acting beta agonists, and there are long-acting anticholinergic agents. Teotropium is the one long-acting anticholinergic agent, and salmeterol and formoterol are the two long-acting beta agonist agents. And they have very comparable effects, and one is a 24-hour agent, the teotropium, so it can be given just once a day. The beta agonists are given twice a day, and it's really a patient and physician preference as to with which you might start in treating COPD. But it's that long-acting bronchodilatation that clearly will give relief and also reduce uh, the exacerbation rate, that acute bronchitis uh, that occurs uh, often in such patients, and the rate can be diminished. So briefly, how would you treat COPD exacerbations then? Well, the COPD exacerbation is a different story. Here we have a patient who's previously stable. Yes, maybe has difficulty climbing stairs or climbing up hills, but day by day, there's very little fluctuation in symptoms. All of a sudden, usually precipitated by a viral respiratory infection, but not always, the patient notices a little stuffed nose, maybe scratchy throat, uh-oh, I'm getting a cold, and the next thing they know that, quote, cold settles in the chest as a sign of an exacerbation of COPD, usually then there's more shortness of breath. So if there is a change in symptoms that you have over a long period of time, and usually following a viral respiratory infection, we call this the exacerbation. I'd like to thank my guest from the Alpert Medical School of Brown University, Dr. Sidney Brayman. Dr. Brayman, thank you for being our guest this week on Hot Topics in Allergy. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Doc. You've been listening to Hot Topics in Allergy, on ReachMD XM160. This show has been presented by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. For more information on the ACAAI, please visit acaai.org. For more information about this or any other show, please visit ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts. Thank you for listening.